after not just your hands, we're after your heart and your face. And so, Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for mercy. And so, Lord, as we're here this evening, we open our eyes, we open our ears, we open our hearts. Father, I would ask you, would you teach us tonight? Would you be our teacher? Would you be our, the spirit of truth who guides us, who leads us into all truth? And Father, would you put on our heart someone, or maybe some ones, there may be more than one, who we can take through this Purple Book study, who we can disciple and lead. So would you give us those people around us, Lord. Father, and for those of us, Lord, I thank you for the Pauls that are in our life. I thank you for the Barnabas that are in our life, the encouragers. And I thank you for the Timothys that you want in our life, that we may not just be disciples, but that we would be disciples that make disciples and thus fulfill your heart and your mission and your commission and the apostolic mandate. In Jesus' name, everyone said... Amen. All right. So again, we're in chapter two. Pick up on a couple of things. Um, we're talking about lordship and obedience. I want to read that quote by Francis Chan because this is just such a stunner for me. Uh, love Francis Chan. If you've not read anything from him and you want to just get a sample of him, you can go on your YouVersion Bible and under the devotionals, the browse or search feature, you can just type in Francis Chan and it'll pull up uh, a devotional from his book, Crazy Love. There's several, and uh, I've, I've just did a couple back-to-back. -back. They're just so powerful, so compelling. And that way you get a little taste uh, of his heart. And so I really believe he's a prophet to the church, a modern-day prophet to the church. And so I would encourage you to, to read that. So I want to give you a little taste of that. Russ has got that up there. On discipleship, this is from his book that's called Multiply. It says, reading through the New Testament, it's not surprising to read that Jesus' followers were focused on making disciples. It makes sense in light of Jesus' ministry and the Great Commission. What's the Great Commission? Just help me out, somebody. There you go. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Uh, go and make disciples of all nations. Go disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them. I mean, so, so there we go. We go, we baptize, we teach. And it's interesting that we go, but we baptize before we teach. It's interesting, just the order of events throughout that. But at the end of the day, we're to teach them what Jesus taught us. So we take as disciples what we learn, and now we reproduce it in others. Now, here's the thing. We don't make disciples unto ourselves. I want to be really clear about this. I don't have disciples. I make disciples of Jesus, not disciples of Jimmy. Does that make sense? I want to be real clear about that because I've been in movements and I've been in that were really intense discipleship movements and it was like, yeah, my disciple and I've got three or four I'm taking through and I'm working with and it just it got really weird where it was like, wait a minute, we're not supposed to be reproducing myself, we're supposed to be reproducing Jesus in others. Does that make sense? So we make disciples unto Christ, not unto ourselves. So here's the thing. When I'm taking somebody through the purple book, I've got thoughts, I've got ideas, I've got opinions, I've got learnings. At the end of the day, though, 
I don't want them to get me. I want them to get him. Does that make sense? So we want to, I want to be real clear as we do this, as we continue to cultivate here a culture of discipleship, that we're not making disciples of, us, of ourselves. We don't need another mini-me Jimmy running around or a mini-me Leonard or a mini-me Ron. We need mini-me Jesuses running around, little Jesuses, right? Little Christs. Christians. So that's the idea. I just want to be clear about that as we continue down this track, and I'll need to probably remind us of that often. So look what it says. The surprise comes when we look at our churches today in light of Jesus' command to make disciples. We've moved so far away from Jesus' command that many Christians don't have a frame of reference for what disciple-making looks like. Now let me just say this. First of all, we're not going to assign blame here for that. We're not going to say, because it's easy to say, oh, the church in the West is so far removed from the Bible. I mean, it's so easy to go down that trek. But instead of uh, making fun of ourselves and, and beating ourselves up, how about we just say, like, where's Waldo? This is, you're here. This is where we are. You are here. So instead of bemoaning the past, why don't we just pick up and move forward? Amen. So we're not just bashing and, you know, putting things down and, and beating the bride up. I don't want to do that. So let's just say we're here, and let's just say we're not where we should be, so let's get to where we need to be. Let's work on that. Let's, let's get our marching orders from Jesus. Remember, we're going to do the next thing he tells us to do, so let's just do that. And, and I'm telling you, it'll be a much better thing. So I'm not here to beat up the church, ever. I'm a church man. So... Listen to this. This is from uh, Rachel Held Evans. I don't know. You may or may not know who she is. She's very cutting edge, 37 years old, passed away this last week. She went in for, she's written some amazing books, and she really has a voice into the culture today of people that have either been hurt, burned out, or, or just crushed by church in general. So again, she's not negative against the church. She's saying, this is how we find faith again when we've been hurt and wounded. And she is, she's a voice into that. 37 years of age, she came down with the flu. She took an antibiotic and it killed her. I mean, she had a, a reaction to it and she died suddenly. And, and just she's a best-selling author and people are just reeling from it this week. And so I've been reading some of her writings and just amazed. Listen to what she says here. The church is not a group of people who believe all the same things. The reason I, I gave out a little caution about us, whether we're going through the proper book or where we're doing discipleship studies together, the goal here isn't conformity. The goal here is unity in the faith. But that doesn't mean believing exactly the same way. It means unity in our heart. And I love the way she put it because it really captured the heart of what I'm trying to say. The church is not a group of people who believe all the same things. The church is a group of people caught up in the same story with Jesus at the center. Now what that does, it makes a lot of room. One of the things that I love about Oak Hills, one of my favorite things about Oak Hills, is that we are a very broad canopy. Very broad theological canopy. And so someone can come in from the Episcopal Church, and they may be sitting by a raging charismatic or Pentecostal, and we're doing life together because we're in the same story. And we're not sitting here splitting hairs on theology. And it's okay to have a variance of opinions in the same room. We already do anyway. We should just acknowledge and celebrate it. Amen? Instead of trying to... Uh, condescend or condemn people into some kind of false unity. 
Okay, so the goal here is not conformity. The goal is unity in the faith and the recognition that we're all in the same story. Amen? Does that make sense? So, so we're all going to have varied approaches, varied things, and there are going to be times when we have to have deep discussions about that, and that's okay. My, my goal is this, is that if we're in disagreement, we walk out of the room, take the gloves off, and we go hang out together and do life and love each other. Amen? And so that, because there's no, there's, the war is usually for nuances, not deeper doctrines. Let's be honest about that. And so we get caught up in preferences and minuscule uh, nuances of doctrine, and then we make that the thing. And that's how denominations get birthed or aborted, however you want to say that. Divorces happen in the church uh, as far as that kind of goes where we call those church splits. You know, we call them plants, but they, sometimes it's a split. And let's just be honest about it and go, you know what? We're not going to agree on every nuance of the Bible, every nuance of, of the scripture. And to, to think that we are is false. It's not realistic. And so remember what our sign says over here? Somebody tell me what is our sign. Somebody mentioned to me, I think one David Hardison made the comment, said, I think it was you, said, we probably shouldn't even put a real sign up there. Just, it's, it's better the way it is. I, somebody said that to me last night in our life group. But um, I don't know, we'll, we'll get it. We'll either get it done or we won't, but it doesn't matter. It's there. And so, by the way, I met a lady yesterday who had popped, dropped by here to, to look at my truck and, and, uh, she started talking about our church. I've heard things about Oak Hills. In fact, I'd like to visit my husband. And I, she said, we live here in Fredericksburg. We drive all the way to CBC in San Antonio to go to church. I'm like, oh, you shouldn't do that. You should come here and hang out with us. I said, but let me ask you a question. Do you know what I'm going to ask her? I said, are you, I, said, <laughs> I said, I have to ask you a question. I do it real deadpan because it catches people off guard. I said, I have to ask you a question. She goes, okay, I'm real serious. I said, uh, are you perfect? And it kind of caught her for a minute. She goes, uh, no. I said, oh, good. You can come. I said, you're perfect. You can come to our church then. I said, if you tell me you're perfect, I'd have to tell you to go down the road. Just keep going to CBC. So anyway, we have fun of that. So I'll, back to the point here. The church is not a group of people who believe all the same things. The church is a group of people caught up in the same story with Jesus at the center. I love that. You know what? I love the heart of that because in any good story, there's, by, there's undertones and bylines. There's, there's various sub-stories going on, sub-themes. They're going to run off in various directions. That's what makes a book interesting or a movie interesting. A story interesting is that it's not just one thing. It's multiple things. And so that's the beauty of the body of Christ, that we can all come together and we can agree on something. One is we can agree that we're, we're all under the banner of Jesus. Amen? And we can agree that we're all in the story together. And somehow, somehow along the way, if we will love each other well, if we'll love him and love each other well, that we're going to move the needle on this thing. And we're going to advance the kingdom in our time. So I love that from Rachel Held Evans. I, I, you should, if you're interested, I, I did some, some research on her and have been doing some reading. Fascinating, fascinating read. All right, lesson three, lordship and relationships. We've been talking about lordship, that Jesus is Lord, he's master, and we're not. Can I get an amen? And when we try to be, we need to ask ourselves an honest question. And that question is, how's that working for you? Because if I'm driving the car when it comes to the things of my life and my spirit, uh, I'm crashing the car. I look like I've been in a demolition derby, right? But when we're following Jesus, he's leading out and we're following him because he is Lord. 
He is Lord. So listen to this. And so if you have your, your book, and if you're wanting to follow along, Annette noticed that last time we were together that some of you were trying to follow along, and I didn't give a good clear where we were. We're in lesson three, and I'm going to read some of the commentary that's in the purple book verbatim, because I really like where, where Rice and Phil and Steve, who wrote that book, where they take this. So listen to this, uh, Lesson 3, Lordship and Relationships. The Bible talks a lot about fellowship. In the Greek, that's the word koinonia, and it means fellowship. Fellowship is more than hanging out with others. It's sharing life with them. I call that doing life. Our life group, we do life together. Uh, we get together. Last night, we just laughed a lot, mostly because, at Pam. But we laughed a lot. And I'm not going to tell that story. I'll spare everybody that one. But we, it was so fun because it was like, you know, there's something about, you know, we know laughter is good medicine, right? But if as brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a time to weep. There's a time to mourn. There's also a time to laugh, a time to dance. We haven't done that yet. But there is a time to do that. And the scripture is very clear that these are all facets of the life that we get to live. So we were fellowshipping last night, enjoying, we were doing life, we were hanging out and enjoying each other and sharing life. It's opening our lives to other followers of Jesus and living in community with them. The word community can be broken down into common unity. Community. While God doesn't want us to abandon our relationships with unbelievers and isolate ourselves from the world, authentic fellowship is something that is experienced in its fullest with other believers. I love the way that's worded because here's the deal. We are to be in the world, just not of the world. Does that make sense? We're to be in it, not of it, but we are to be in it. We're to be salt. We're to be light. We're, we're to be in it to impact it just not of it. And we, we're of another kingdom, but we are to be in it. So I love, I don't run from the, from what we'd call an unbeliever or a not yet Christian. I like to call a pre-Christian. I don't run from them. I embrace them because Jesus wants us to love them toward him. Lesson three, lordship and relationships. In 1 Corinthians chapter five, verse 11, this is some strong language, strong language. Listen to this. But now I am writing you. This is Paul writing the church at Corinth. Do you remember? The church at Corinth was a perfect church. Amen? No, no, no. Some of you know your Bible too well. The church at Corinth was a train wreck. It was off the rails. It was a disaster. I mean, to be blunt, crazy stuff was happening. Uh, I, I actually, I'm not even going to go. It was bad. It's just bad. Think of the worst church split, church fight, church mess you've ever been in. Multiply that by a thousand. That was Corinth. It was a train wreck. And so Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians, and most of it, a lot of it, was to correct them. It was to rebuke them. It was to say, we've got to get things in order, and he would enumerate the things they were doing and how off the rails they were. So he's writing them, and this is what he says. Now, when I read things that were written to the book of Corinth, I also have to contextualize that. Remember, context is king. We don't read the Bible and just extrapolate verses and go, I'm going to make that my verse. I'm going to put that on my poster on the wall. I'm going to put that on my mirror. We have to be careful when we proof text. That means to lift things out of context. So we need to read things in context. That's why we want to be good students of the Bible. So we look at the history, we look at the, the setting, and so as we were going through the book of Acts, 
for those 18 months, we spent some time in Corinth, and we unpacked a little bit about what was going on there. Paul was in Ephesus, traveling back and forth to Corinth, having to deal with that church that was a train wreck. So he was coming in and out, and so he wrote this letter, and here's what he says. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. Now, I put a note there. This is speaking of willful, ongoing, and defiant rebellion. Now, before we just take that verse and as a template put it over our situation here in Northern America, what we need to be mindful of is who he was addressing and why he was addressing them. Because what will happen is the church comes along and we read a verse like that and we suddenly make that the rule for life, the rule for living, without understanding the historical narrative. And if we don't understand the historical narrative, we will lift it out of its context, we'll make it a rule for our life, and we will destroy people. We will crush people. We religiously will think we're doing the will of God when in fact we're crushing people because we're taking something that wasn't meant specifically, universally for all time. We have to be careful. We have to be mindful of the Bible, what it's really saying. And so I want to help you with this because this scripture has been used to hurt people, to shun people, turn their back on people. But you have to understand, Paul was addressing a church that was off the rails, and this was a specific incident of people that were coming in and creating chaos and division and bringing uh, immorality into the church. It was, it was willful, ongoing rebellion. And so we have to be careful that we take a verse like this and say, well, my friend's blowing it. My friend's greedy. He's got sexual issues. Uh, he's immoral. He, he's, yeah, he's an idolater too. And oh yeah, he's a drunkard. Yeah, and he swindled. Well, I, I'm just going to shun him because the Bible says not to have anything to do. Be careful. Be careful. Does this make sense what I'm saying? We have to be careful because what we'll do if we're not careful, we will so far remove ourselves from the world that God has put, put us in that we will have no impact, no effect like a tea bag that should be seeping out, leaking out, and tainting everything around it, and coloring the water, and, and changing the very, the very chemical nature of that water because of Christ in us leaking out and bringing life. If we're not in, in it doing it, there's no change. There's no potential for us to bring change. So we have to be in it. But I want to be clear on this because I don't want you to read something like this and then have a runaway and then diss all your friends whom God has brought into your orbit so that you can love them towards Christ. Does that make sense? So that's why it's important to know and understand the context. So it's just speaking of willful, ongoing, and defiant rebellion. And look what, out of 1 Samuel, I remember going through a study with John Bevere, and uh, he talked about this, about rebellion. Look what this says. So Samuel said, quote, has the Lord... At as the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Isn't that beautiful? He says, and to heed than the fat of rams. And then he says this interesting thing. He says, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. You ever heard that verse before? You ever heard that statement before? 
that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. I'm just going to let that simmer for a second. We're on six on my oven right now. Just let that simmer. Sin, uh, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness. That literally means obstinance. It's like a, a donkey that digs its heels in and won't go. When God's trying to move the people of God and they dig their heels in and they just, they, think of them in the Exodus, the wilderness, when they were stubborn and obstinate and would not submit to his will. He says this, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. The word iniquity is sin. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. So Samuel was bringing a hard word, a hard word to the king. Strong, isn't it? So when I read something about what was happening, speaking of willful, ongoing, defiant rebellion, these are people that are intentional in their rebellion. These aren't people who have a heart love Jesus, but are stumbling over what's going on in their lives. They're trying, but they can't. Because here's the deal. All of us can try, but we can't. You, if we'll just get that in our head to begin with, we are incapable of living this Christian life. It is Jesus himself. Remember this, Jesus died for you so he could give his life to you. And here's the kicker, so he can live his life through you. For you, to you, and through you. Jesus wants to live the Sermon on the Mount through you. He wants to live the commands through you. He wants to live his life through you so that we get the privilege of cooperating with him. We're joint heirs, co-heirs, but we're also in cooperation with him. We're co-laborers. We're collaborating. We're co-laboring with him. And so we get the privilege of doing this. I was reading something today that was just blowing my mind. It, it was so good, I was yelling at Annette across the house, let me read this paragraph to you. It's so amazing. You ever done that? You ever read something and you just had to say it? And she's on the phone going, I'm on the phone. You know, I'm like, no, hang up. This is amazing. And I was reading a book called The Cure. One of our uh, precious um, life group members recommended the book. I immediately downloaded it. And it's, reading chapter one's blown my mind already. But he makes this, this statement. He says that when Jesus, he says, here you're standing here. And let's say this is, I'll just for sake of illustration. This is my junk. This is my sin. Obviously, if it's mine, it's going to be a lot bigger than that. We're just, for sake of illustration, we're going to go with a little one. So it's, but we stand facing our sin. We stand dealing with it. We stand, I've got to be better. I've got to do better. I've got to get that out of my life. I've got to deal with that. I, I, I. You hear that? He said, but where Jesus stands in the life of a believer is between me and my sin. And Jesus isn't facing my sin. He's not looking at my sin. Guess where Jesus is facing? He's facing me. He's standing there with me. I can't even see my sin because it's on the other side of him. Because he is standing in between. He is the intercessor. He's the one who comes between me and my sin. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Wouldn't you want to yell at your wife across the house and say, let me read this to you. It's amazing. I want to encourage you with that. So here's the thing. We are incapable of doing this, but he's got to do it through us. But we have to co-operate and co-labor with him. Does that make sense? I'm going to keep beating that drum for as long as, as my heart beats. We're going to continue to come back to that. So 
Number four, if you're looking in your book, lesson three, number four, what does God command? 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Here we go again. Remember this Corinthians he's talking to. Therefore, come out from among them, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. He's saying, look, and he was referring to these that were causing the problems. He says, look, we've got to come out from among them and we've got to separate ourselves from what they're doing. There does come a point in our life where we have to take a step back and say, I can't join them in that because in, in, um, in Texas state minimum standard terms, they're a danger to themselves and others. And people that are a danger to themselves and others, um, Dr. Henry Cloud calls unsafe people. And what do you have to do with unsafe people? Well, another book of his, that's one book, Safe People. His other book, Boundaries, we have to build boundaries. We have to build a moat around ourselves. And there comes a point where you have to take a step back and say, you know what, that person is toxic. And they're toxic to my life. And I have to take a step back because whenever I'm around them, it brings out the worst in me. I'm going to have to, to step out. And Paul's telling them, therefore, come out from them and be separate. Touch no unclean thing and I'll receive you. He's saying, look, come out. And there are times when you have to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going here. Again, remember that was willful disobedience. Listen to this in the next slide. Again, under lesson three. To be separate doesn't mean we should cut ourselves off from the rest of the world. Can I repeat that, please? Because a lot of Christians are like, man, I wish I had your job, Pastor Jimmy. I'd just be in the, reading the Bible all day long and just be in the Word, drink coffee, and hang out with people. And I'm like, do you want it? <laughs> I'll trade. And uh, what they don't realize is that, that um, pastors smell like sheep. Have you ever been around a bunch of sheep? Don't you love the fact that Jesus calls us sheep? Isn't that just romantic and sweet? Have you ever been around sheep? Now I'm talking about sheep, not us. Sheep are the dumbest animals on the planet. I'm not kidding. They're cute and cuddly, but they're dumb. I had a sheep one time. We had a sheep and a little lamb. We had a ewe and a lamb, a little baby lamb. Oh, it was so sweet and so pretty until I got him in my truck and got him home. And the sheep ran down into the bar ditch and couldn't get out. The little lamb's standing up on, and they're, they're talking to each other. They're going back and forth. And, and she's distraught because she walked off in a bar ditch and couldn't get out. You know what a bar ditch is, right? It's on the side of the road. She walked off into a bar ditch, and she wasn't smart enough to turn around and walk out. I had to go, and that thing was heavy. I had to go pick it up and drag it out of the bar ditch. And I thought, I began to realize, oh, this is what Jesus calls us. So this pastor thing, I'm just telling you, we smell like sheep, and that's not always a great smell. So, so be careful about wanting it. But the Lord puts you in your job in the world around people who drop the F-bombs all the time and people who are nasty and people who are mean. <laughs> what are you laughing at, Pam? And people that are that are disturbed and broken, and what do we want to do? We want to go work at the church so we can get away from these people. And they're the very people Jesus has brought into our orbit. Not so they can impact us, but so we can love them towards him. He has airlifted you into a situation. The very job you want out of because of these stinking pagans may be 
the very place he's called you to be so you can smell like them and love them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I didn't get a lot of amens there. Okay. Amen. Amen. By faith. Amen. To be separate doesn't mean we should just cut ourselves off from the rest of the world. After all, Jesus tells us to be salt and light to the world. We can't be salt and light from a distance. Jesus himself was criticized for being a friend of sinners. Well, you know, Jesus is hanging out with that crowd again. And you know what that means. That means he's doing what they're doing. But what they didn't know is he was healing them and bringing them life and imparting hope and giving them grace and extending mercy. And he was changing lives because he was with them. But like Jesus, God wants us to have a transforming influence on the world around us, not the other way around. Can I get an amen? All right, so I was a youth pastor for 14 years. Trade secret, I'm still one, I'm just older, okay? So, I mean, y'all already know that. So, um, Don, come here. I'm going to do a demonstration that we did in youth group. Some of y'all may have seen this. So, here's Don. He's going to stand right down here. Don is my best friend. We're buds. We hang out. We play football together. We drive around the drag in our pickup, you know. And, and, but here's the deal. Um, I'm a follower of Jesus, and my best friend Don is not. He's that, he's that kid that listens to heavy metal and stuff, you know, that evil music. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That was probably a Schlitz, too, just to say. Back in the day, it would have been Lone Star, where I'm from. But anyway, so he's here, and I'm the Christian kid. I go to church. I'm, I'm, I'm a good kid. And, and I, my parents are saying, you know, you really should watch Don because, I mean, he's, he may be a bad influence on you. I went, no, no, I'm an influence on him because I'm strong, and I go to youth group. So I, I've got it together. So here's what happens. In my mind's eye, my goal is to bring Don up to where I am. But Don, unknowingly, what does he do? He pull, pull me. Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. See. But he pulls me down to where he is. Why is that? Because I'm not as strong as I thought. And a lot of times when we associate and yoke ourselves with people, we actually, instead of us influencing them, they influence us. Does that make sense? Give Don a hand as he sits down. I feel like I'm in youth ministry again. Wow. That's, that's going way back. But the idea here, like Jesus, God wants us to have a transforming influence on the world around us, not the other way around. So the thing is, is we enter into our situations where God's put us, but we do it with eyes wide open. We do it with purpose. We do it with intentionality. We are sober-minded. We know why we're there. I don't know if you figured this out. This, is a, this could be a revelation for somebody. You're not in your job for a paycheck. Isn't that crazy? You're actually in your job as an assignment from God to impact the world. If you will begin to get that in your brain, it will shift the way you work. It will shift what you do, and it will shift the reason for you getting up in the morning. Instead of dragging out of bed, being frustrated about what you're doing, you realize, wait, this is my purpose. He's told me to go and disciple the nations. This is the nation he's given me in this season of my life. I am in this place to make a difference. And when people wake up to that, it changes everything. Now, you're not working for a paycheck. You're working for a purpose. There's a major difference. Amen?
It's called marketplace ministry. We're called to the marketplace to minister Christ. Next one, the quality of our relationships with other believers is a crucial testimony to an unbelieving world. We should be able to forgive and love not just our friends, but even our enemies. We must realize that we are in a spiritual battle and we must be trained and determined not to allow bitterness and unforgiveness to push us into the darkness. I haven't done a teaching on this, but I'm going to unpack this one day. I'm going to give you the, the, just a minuscule thing. The reason Jesus calls us to pray for our enemies and bless those who persecute us, or bless our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, it's all in the same thing there in Matthew, is that when you bless somebody, you're actually posturing them under the canopy of God's justice. All right, let me say that again, because that's a bit of a mind bender. Why would Jesus tell us to bless our enemies? We think blessing is like somebody sneezes and you go, oh, bless you, oh, thank you. I am blessed, you know. Or it's, you know, you're getting your meal at uh, the Whataburger and the kid goes, you go, hey, thank you. He goes, well, have a blessed day. Oh, well, you too, you know. Yay, we're both Christians, you know. We, we just, we make it so nice. But actually, blessing is posturing. Blessing is a powerful thing. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, blessing would, could be the conference, the conference of property. It could be the conference of well-being. It could be conference of an inheritance from a father to a son. That was a blessing. It was transferred. It has massive implications. But we, we say we're blessed, we're blessed, we're blessed. But actually, we can bless others. And that doesn't mean just paying for their meal, although that's nice. That's a blessing. But a real, there's a much higher dynamic to it. And we'll, again, we'll unpack this at one point. I'll give you the short version. When you bless somebody, when you intentionally, when there's somebody at work, somebody in the family, there's a difficult situation, and you are intentional knowing, I want to curse, but I've been called to bless. When you release a blessing over somebody, you're actually posturing them under God's canopy of justice. And you're releasing your ability to exact justice, and you're giving it to God. You're trusting God to do the right thing. Now, in your mind, you may be thinking, well, if I posture that person under God's canopy of blessing, God's going to rain fire and hailstone down, <laughs> you know, brimstone and fire. But really, that's not the heart of Jesus at all. It's to bless and posture them under the canopy of God's justice so that they might be saved, so that they may be touched, they may be impacted. It shifts. And let me tell you something. If you have an enemy, the best thing you can do is pray for them. And the best thing you can do when you pray for them, it's better for you than it is for them. Because it's hard to pray for somebody and stay mad for too long. It shifts your mindset. It shifts your thinking from contempt to compassion. And it's a shift in thinking. And the scripture says that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, but that literally says, and the New Living Translation got it right, be transformed by changing the way you think. And when you pray for somebody, you pray and bless your enemy, it actually changes the way you think about them. It changes your perspective, the way you see them. It changes your angle of attack from one of, of being revenge and retribution to being love and compassion and wanting the best for them. So that's from your end. On God's end, he's now positioned because you've positioned them there through the blessing to now exact justice as it must be, as it needs to be. Isn't that powerful? We'll unpack that another day, but let me tell you, it'll change the way you pray for people. And you'll be blessing a whole lot more people in situations and circumstances. So that's the situation here. 
We must realize that we are in a spiritual battle and we must be trained and determined not to allow bitterness and unforgiveness to push us into darkness. We're here to forgive. We're here to extend grace. We're here to love. In lesson four, that was in lesson three. In lesson four, it's called, Can You Pass the Test? That's that next section. Listen to the, you've got it there in your book. It's that first paragraph. The book of 1 John describes how we can evaluate the real condition of our lives. Deception is a very powerful force. You know why deception is so powerful? Because we don't know we're deceived when we're deceived. That's the essence and nature of deception. You don't know it. The devil is the master deceiver. Remember in, in uh, the book of John, chapter 8, it says that the devil was a murderer from the beginning, a liar, and the father of it, the father of lies. He was a deceiver. Many have fallen under the influence of his deception. How many out of heaven fell because of the devil? How many of the angels fell? Huh? One-third. One-third of the heavenly host fell because of the devil. There's a principle here, and you, you, this is just something to think about. If one-third of the angels fell, and we consider those demons, they're demonic forces, they're demonic entities, so that means two-thirds of the heavenly host is still intact. But here's the good news. While the enemy's kingdom is diminishing, the scripture says that of God's kingdom, there will be no end. It's an ever-increasing kingdom, which means the heavenly host is continuing to prolifer proliferate, and the demonic host is diminishing. I don't know about you, that says we're winning. We win, right? Hey, praise God. So anyway, it's just a thought, something to put in there in the hopper. So listen to this. Many have fallen under the influence of his deception. Many have prayed prayers, attended Bible studies, or even joined a church, but their lives have not been fully changed by Jesus. Here's one reason. Let's, let's say there's two rooms. There's the room of good intentions, the room of good intentions is filled with people that have good intentions. They love God. They love Jesus. They go to church. And they have good intentions. In fact, they want to do something for God. They want to please God. So we call it the room of good intentions. The road that gets you there is the road of I want to please God. So the road of pleasing God. There's another road that goes another way, and it's the road of trusting God. And you have a choice. You can go the road of trusting God or you can go the road of pleasing God. You can end up in the room of good intentions or you can end up in the room of grace. In the room of good intentions, it's filled with people who are wearing masks. And everybody that you go to and you introduce yourself to and you ask them how they're doing, everybody in that room says they're just fine. In fact, I'm working a deal. It's about to go through. My son's amazing. Oh, my kid got straight A's at school. Everything's fine. Everything's great. Everything's good in the room of good intentions. And if there's anybody in the room of good intentions who just comes clean and says, well, my life sucks right now. I'm sorry. I'm having a difficult time. I'm sorry. I'm having a I'm not fine. Then you don't belong in the room of good intentions. And you're quickly handed a mask so you can cover it up. But now let's go over to the room of grace. And we get there by the way of trusting God. Now we're in the room of grace. The room looks the same, same dimensions. It's full of people too, but nobody in that room is wearing a mask. Nobody. In fact, everybody's completely, completely open. People are laughing in that room. They're com conversating. They're, having, they're, they're, they're enjoying each other's company. 
and you walk into that room, and the, and the host of that room asks you this, how are you doing? And you say, well, I'm just doing fine. And somebody from the back of the room says, oh, really? Really? We could add that in that room, couldn't we? How's that working for you? Maybe there's a banner on the wall. Maybe there's another banner that says, no perfect people allowed. In, the, in that room, the room of grace, you go in there and you're exasperated. You're tired of faking it. You're tired of posing. You're tired of posturing. I was telling the story last night that I was at a, at a John Eldridge um, retreat. Russ and I were there together. And I met this man. And one of the things that John Eldridge talks about is our tendency to pose. We're posers. We, you, know, you know, shake, firm handshake, give them your last name. You're somebody. They need to know who you are. Yeah, you just taught that growing up. You know, look them in the eye. So I met this guy. I just introduced myself to him, and I firm handshake, looked him in the eye, gave him my last name, and then it dawned on me I didn't catch his name because I was posing. So I said to the man, I said, I'm sorry, I didn't get your name because I was posing. <laughs> we laughed. Russ laughed at me. We laughed, and, and he gave me his name. We had a wonderful conversation. But the Lord, the Holy Spirit, checked me up in that moment. You're doing it again. You're doing it again. In the room of good intentions, everybody's posing. In the room of grace, nobody's posing. Why? Because everybody in the room of grace has already admitted they're not fine. I'm not great. Things are not working out the way I thought they would. And in the room of grace is where this scene happens, where Jesus stands between you and your crap. Oh, I'm sorry, that's on the internet. That You and your stuff. He stands between you and your stuff. And he's facing you. And in that room, you can't even see your stuff and he can't even see your stuff. Isn't that beautiful? Which room do you want to do life in? Do you want to be around a bunch of people who are honest about this? Or do you want to be about, around a bunch of people who are wearing masks and who are just fine? who just have it all together. I don't know, it's our choice, your choice. Many have prayed prayers, attended Bible studies, or even joined a church, but their lives have not been truly changed by Jesus. That is the room of good intentions. I don't know about you, but I don't belong in that room. I belong in the other one. Hashtag Me Too is a big deal right now with all the sexual stuff that's come out and all the, the it's been publicized. And so Hashtag Me Too are, are women who are stepping up and saying, Me Too. I, I've, been, I've been offended. I've been molested. I've been, you know, whatever, violated. And you know what? I think that's a good thing. But there's a church in Colorado Springs, Colorado called Discovery Church. And in that church... They've, they had Me Too before Me Too was a hashtag. And their mentality in that church is this, and it's a massive mega church because it's filled with people who live in the room of grace, not in the room of good intentions. And in that room of grace, in that church, the pastor actually, he's a mega church pastor, and he has autism. 
And he just one day came out. He realized he had never told his story. And this was while the church was smaller. He had about 40 staff. They were growing. And he had never come clean and been honest about his autism because his mom told him to never tell anybody because you'll be labeled, you'll be marked, you'll be ridiculed. And he, he suffered coming up through school because he was so misunderstood because of his autism. He would blurt out. He'd get in trouble. He'd act out in class. And he stayed in trouble. And then one day with his... With his whole staff there, he, he said, I got up in front of the whole staff and I told them I had autism and that I'd been laboring under it for my, my entire life. He said, you know what happened in the room? Relief. And people were like, ah, me too. And he said, I'm just honest, I don't have it all together. Me too. I'm just honest with you, I, I suffer with this, and I'm misunderstood often. Me too. That church, that phrase caught in that church, and it became their byline of the church, Discovery Church. Me too. If you go on their website, which you ought to read the, the first page of their website, it's Discovery Church, Colorado Springs, Colorado. It goes through this litany of statements. You know, I don't have it all together. Sometimes I doubt my faith. Sometimes I struggle to believe. Me too. This is long before hashtag me too came out. And I love that. They probably have an invisible sign on their wall too. I have a feeling. But you know what they're doing? They're reaching people who realize if you're honest about your situation, I can be honest about mine. Amen? And this is what we're talking about here. People who've been in church, they've attended, they prayed prayers, they love God, they've been to the Bible studies but their lives have not been truly changed by Jesus. It's not working for them. Lesson four, can you pass the test? This is under number three, if you're looking in your book, lesson four. And the question it asks is, what does the Bible say about people who claim to be Christians, but do not follow God's commands? Okay, these are the people who live in the room of good intentions. 1 John 2, verses three through six. We know that we have come to know him if, what? We obey. We, we do what he says. Let's just put it in our vernacular. We know, we know that we've come to, that we know Jesus if we do what he says. It's very simple. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I love the way John is so subtle with that. <laughs> wow. Verse 5, but if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. I love that. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. That's pretty strong, isn't it? Now look at the statement here. This may seem hard to us, but if we embrace the truth, we will be changed. Truth transforms. Facts don't. Facts are temporary and subject to change. Truth is eternal and never changes. But it changes us. Amen? But if we embrace the truth, we'll be changed. Jesus' death on the cross paid the price for our sin. His resurrection broke the power of sin and death in light of the power of the cross and resurrection. Why would we want to accept a gospel that does not transform our lives and liberate us from sin? Which room do you want to be in? The room of good intentions or the room of grace? As for me and my house, we're parking over here. 
no masks, scars exposed, not hiding, not hiding. Because it's still there. It's behind Jesus. He, it's on the other side of Jesus. But it's still there enough that I know that if I don't depend on him and keep my eyes on him, I will fail. I will fall. You do know that every one of us are one decision away from disaster. Do you know Billy Graham was one decision away from disaster? Your favorite pastor, preacher, superstar, celebrity, pastor, book author, whatever, one decision away from disaster. We all are. And that's why we have to keep our eyes on Jesus, not our stuff. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we honor you and love you. Thank you for truth that does indeed transform. Father, I pray for my friends right here and anyone who listens to this or watches this. Lord, would you give us all the grace, all of us, give us all the grace to choose the path, the road of trusting you. Not the road of pleasing you, the road of trusting you. For in our trusting you, you are pleased when we trust you. And it's the road that leads to the room of grace. And for my friends that find themselves in the room of good intentions, with their mask on saying, it's fine, it's good, I'm okay. Father, I pray for a grace awakening in their lives. An awakening, a me too moment for them where they realize they're not fine. It's not fine. It's not all good. And may they beat a path to the room of grace in the presence of Jesus. So I pray for my friends, Lord. Give us the courage to be honest about it. Because we will not reach our world apart from honesty and authenticity and being genuine in who we are. And it may be one day when we stand and say, hey, we have struggles too. Somebody out in the world will go, me too. And there will be a connection point with them. Give us grace to be authentic and real. We love you. Thank you for this study. Thank you for drawing us deeper in. And give us the grace to be disciples who make disciples. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen and amen. Blessings. Love you all.